Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Uh, James with a Bren gun lurking in the background, um, <laughs> as ever. James, who are we talking to today? And I'm very excited about this. This is a thrilling thing to be talking about. Well, we're, we're, we're talking to a, an old friend of mine and, and someone you've got to know as well, um, who's an absolute expert on the on British intelligence and the Second World War. Written absolutely loads of books, been on loads of TV programmes, um, crops up all over the place, sort of offering words of wisdom about um, intelligence matters. It's Helen Fry. And Helen, I'm thrilled to have you on. Really, really am. Oh, do you know, I think it's fabulous. Thank you for having me. Ah, uh, you're, you're more than welcome. Now, now, Helen, um, there's so much to talk about because, I mean, if nothing else, you are incredibly prolific. And there's, there's, there's b- books all the time from you as you, as you delve into um, stuff that I think people do don't know about and I'm on my desk I've in front of me of Spymaster the man who saved MI6 about well I mean a whole chunk of skullduggery and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and stuff that that it's not so much that it's unsung it's just simply that it's been secret well that's it I mean he's lived for 40 years in the shadows of MI6 which during his lifetime and beyond didn't officially exist yeah. But the research, you mentioned all those books I've written. Well, in actual fact, it's accidental. And that might sound funny, but I have (laughs) been writing for over 20 years. So, yeah, probably about a book a year, maybe, something like that. But it kind of brings together decades of research. Mm. And so you fall into military intelligence, you found lots of other aspects around that. And so they're all kind of interrelated. So it does... Makes sense, even though it was an accident initially. <laughs> but first of all, let's—I mean—we're we're talking about Spy Master. So, who who is? To tell us about Thomas Kendrick. Thomas Kendrick, born in British South Africa, 1881. He cut his teeth in intelligence in the final months of the Boer War. Well, I love the fact that he's cycling behind enemy lines. It's part of a bicycle brigade. So he's actually gaining intelligence for the British. And that really begins his career, as I said. And then between then and the First World War, he's still engaged in intelligence gathering for the British in South Africa. And he's moving amongst the kind of diamond mining communities and I was not expecting to find 
some of those founding members of what today we call MI6 or the Secret Intelligence Service actually were involved in intelligence gathering in South Africa in the early 1900s. And so it kind of builds from there and it kind of underlines much of my research where I kind of remind myself, never be surprised by what you're going to discover. <laughs> so we've got spies, diamond mining and international yeah. connections. And it goes on from there. And then just very briefly to say he serves in intelligence in the First World War. Then in the 1920s and 30s, he's undercover as the most important SIS head of station in Vienna. You might want to tease out a bit more mm. of his life then. And then he goes on in the Second World War to be one of the most significant wartime intelligence commanders. And just for a chance conversation with a veteran, I might never have discovered that wartime story. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm hooked now. I'm absolutely hooked. <laughs> Tell us about this wartime story, vote. Which one? So you want the Well, the veteran, the veteran you met. And, and the, oh, the and, veteran. I mean, how did that come about? Well, I've been working on the story of the... I'm doing a bit more on this, actually, on the 10,000 Germans who fought for Britain accidentally discovered that living in northwest London, realising that no one was telling these veteran stories, 90% of them Jewish, 10% of them sort of roughly anti-Nazis. And so I started on, on that wanting to tell just one story. And you very quickly realise they start out in the Pioneer Corps digging for victory. They're highly talented, fluent German speakers. The British government realised halfway through the war, oh my gosh, we've got these fluent German speakers. Let's transfer them for special operations, so SOE, for commando unit known as 3 Troop or X Troop, and all kinds of other secret operations, as well as conventional warfare. And there was one veteran, Fritz Lustig, who I'd got to know during this whole period. And he said to me, you know, he'd fled Berlin, Jewish family. I always wanted to fight on the front line, was never given the chance. He said, I was stuck in Buckinghamshire. Well, I'm not in Buckinghamshire this morning, but a bit like I am now, we are with our headphones on. For three years of the war, signed the Official Secrets Act. Did we do anything which made a difference to the outcome of the war? And I promised him I would work on the declassified files. And it's just brought up this incredible story that Historic England have now recognised being on a par with the work of the Codebreakers. So they were known as the secret listeners and they were German Jewish refugees transferred to intelligence at three secret sites outside London. I mean, you you touched on it there that that we we're we're well familiar with with the story of the code breaking Bletchley Park. I mean, almost to the point of almost the point where I think now people have uh, think that's how we won the the, the Second World War, um, uh, and that the that that's 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 the thing the British brought is the code breaking. Whereas in fact, it's it's part of a much bigger in itself. It's part of a a, a bigger war effort, and then within intelligence, it's only one of the it's only one of the sort of. Uh, Cogs, because after all, the listening is the listening is used to to tip to tip off. They're looking for tip offs, aren't they? They're looking for have you seen the new? Have you flown the new pilots saying to each other? Have you flown the new Fokker Wolf yet? And then everyone's ears prick up, go, what new Fokker Wolf? Or it's or it's um, they're looking for they're looking for intentions, state of morale, um, uh, all the things that you get from from basically from people talking to each other um, candidly. 
Yeah, it's unguarded conversations. So they have, uh, what I love is the fact that psychology, they have a phony interrogation and then they go back to where they're being held if it's in the stately home, among if it's to Hitler's top commanders, they're kind of wandering around this stately home. The lower rank prisoners are at two other sites and they go back to their cell and they boast to their mate what they haven't told the interrogating officer and they talk about their war. I mean, the moment they're talking about their wives and their childhood, we, you know, the microphones are not... Yeah, we listen through the microphones, but we're not recording that. But the moment they're talking about battle plans or their war, they inadvertently give up. I mean, there's just volumes of it. And my appeal now, and James, I hope you'll work on some of these for your material on Italy and Monte Cassino. There are so much of this material that if anyone's writing a book on the Second World War, they need to at least look at these files to dismiss anything that might not be relevant. But, you know, there's so much of it there. I think it's going to start and is starting to change our understanding of the war. And in many cases, you have eyewitness accounts, which we may not believe to be particularly reliable, but again, it adds a different side to the picture. And so this is multi-layered, and it's actually a really exciting, if dense, archive. We're talking about 75,000 transcripts of conversations, and they're not only a page long. Well, I, I looked at loads of them for my Battle of Britain book, um, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. And it was fascinating because, of course, one of the things that came across so much in their conversations that, of, of, uh, that were transcribed was just how much Bomber Command was doing um, in, in their uh, airfields over in northern France. Uh, and that was a real awakening for me. I mean, I'd always sort of felt that, that Bomber Command hadn't quite had its due. But here it was in black and white from the words of the Germans themselves, sort of going, oh, God, these bombers are over there. I can get an inch of sleep. And, you know, God, we're always worried that the Blenheims and Wellingtons are going to be coming over. And, you know, it was just, it was so repeated. It, it was um, it was extraordinary. And it kind of underlines a part of the battle that people at the time hadn't really been talking about. So you're right, it's, it's, it's revelatory. It's the stuff about... About them talking about their experiences as a casino, then. Um... But that, but that's really interesting, though, Jim, isn't it? Because what you're talking about there is the sort of the, the the infill, the human bit that you can't that you you know, ultra after all tells you, you know, how many staffel are, are at which air base and when they're moving to the next place and whether their whether their logistic train has arrived and what they're probably going to be ordered to do, but to hear them saying. Because after all, what you've got there isn't necessarily what Bomber Command are doing. It's what their impression of what Bomber Command is doing, which is the real, which is the real doughy stuff in between the the the, the numbers, isn't it? You know, the gap, the stuff between the stuff in between how people feel and what their impression of stuff is, which is the stuff of morale. Which, after all, one of the things you're trying to do is figure out the enemy's morale and how to break it, uh, isn't it? Well, they they had a huge admiration for the Spitfire. You probably remember that, James, when you were looking. It's like, oh, you know, can't beat the Spitfire. And then there's one scene in particular where you've got two prisoners of war kind of looking out the window saying, oh, my gosh, and there's a dogfight. It's during the Battle of Britain. There's a dogfight overhead. And these are rare eyewitness accounts. OK, that might not add to the intelligence side, but it does give us probably a unique... I don't know of any other examples where we get such a colourful and full picture of life in the Second World War. Yeah, you also get, for the Battle of Britain stuff, you get a very, very good good picture of the morale. Because obviously, to start off in the early part of the 1940s, they're kind of like, well, I'm not worried about being here because I'll be released soon because when we come over, um, you know, I'll just get released. It'll be fine. <laughs> you know, this is just like a temporary blip. 
and, and you see that the you know if, if it's a graph it just goes downhill you've still got some sort of diehards sort of going no no it's all going to be fine we're going to invade you know any minute in in, in the sort of third week of september but they're notably far fewer and those who are sort of going well i think you know everyone's absolutely on their last legs over in our airfield and everyone's finished and you know everyone's completely depressed and no one feels that the top brass are listening and all that sort of stuff it's um yeah it's a it's you you notice that uh, and by reading a lot of these things and as you're saying alan there's so many aren't there that that you do get a picture you know and you you could do it your own sort of poll um, and polling and, and sort of algorithms on the basis of what you're you're reading in this. But also the Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, this needs far more in-depth study. I've been, I have begun, I mean, it's sad, isn't it? I've begun to list all the U-boats that were sunk and the survivors came through these sites. I haven't finished it yet because there were so many. Um, and I was astonished, <laughs> like right across the wartime, you are kidding. And all the intelligence they brought, particularly on new technology, but one of the key things we needed to know, which we couldn't ascertain very well, was how successful, you know, our campaign was and the loss of U-boats and how quickly they could replace them. And at one point, actually, it's one of the senior commanders and actually Rudolf Hess himself, who came through Kendrick's sites, but was at a fourth site, Mayak Chip Place. They say that, oh, you know, we're, re we're rearming at one U-boat a week. It's like we're thinking... This can't be true, the comments. But then later it was verified as being being accurate. I mean, much later in the war. So we're picking up material that we don't necessarily know that it's accurate. But in hindsight, we now can tell the prisoners were giving us really, really valuable. So it's about assessing with other sources a material on SIGINT that helps Bletchley Park. I mean, it's massive. It's just a huge and very exciting archive. If you can shift paper and that, that's what you have to do it's not digitized <laughs> no 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 uh, but i think what we should do is I'm, I'm not sure we've actually explained um what is going on here so so basically they've got these houses there's trent park um which is philip sassoon's place he's got port limp hasn't he and he's got and he's got trent park in in northeast london and 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 officers are brought there luftwaffe officers particularly at the start of the war are brought there and they're grilled one on one and quite harshly, and it's this whole sort of single light thing, and and you know, they obviously don't give anything. And then they're they're, they're sort of given proverbial sort of um, cocoa and biscuits and comfy chairs, aren't they? And put in a room together, and the rooms are bugged, and it's the transcripts of those buggings that we're talking about. Yeah, so the microphones, which were highly sophisticated for their day, they came from America, the Radio Corporation of America. They were hidden in the light fittings. And in Trent Park, because there were two other sites later, but in Trent Park, also in the fireplaces. So very clever kind of psychology. And occasionally they would use uh, what's known as a stool pigeon. And I'll explain that because some listeners might not realise. Stool pigeon in the early part of the war would be one of our guys that would dress up in uniform and pretend to be a fellow prisoner. And it wouldn't just be for a few hours or a couple of days. It would be for quite a duration. And that he had to have a cover story and that took quite a you know, quite a nerve. And one of those stool pigeons was Olivia Newton-John's father, Bryn Newton-John. Yeah. and that, Amazing, isn't it? I yeah. know. Yeah. And then later, of course, 42, he goes to Bletchley <laughs> Park. But, you know, he's doing that in air intelligence. This is a tri-services air, Navy and Army intelligence. And that, again, was a new 
aspect of intelligence working together. So it, it is, it's incredibly clever. It's relying on psychology, relying also sometimes not giving them a full interrogation. And they go back, and we know this from some of the conversations, they go back to their mate and they get frustrated and they say, wow, you know, the British are stupid and incompetent. Well, of course, we're not. We know exactly what we're doing. Uh, yeah, it's great. And thousands of German prisoners of war come through Trent Park in that first part of the war, of course, having opened originally from September 39 in the Tower of London. I love that part. The first three or four months of the war, you're taking your first German prisoners to the Tower of London. Where else? Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, where else? Where else? <laughs> so who are, the big, who are the biggest names that kind of go through this process? Yeah, how can I pick out? I mean, Hess, obviously, I suppose. Yes, Hess is held. We we you can read in Spymaster at the behest of uh, the head of MI six, who's moving him around. He's at a fourth site, Myatchit Place, that's near Aldershot, specifically for him. But I think, I think it's those top commanders, those that are first captured in North Africa, and this is the extraordinary. Yes, Tomer and people like that, and Von Arnim. And... Yes, then they all come through. Kramer and later after D Day, you have whole swathes of them. Those top commanders coming from Brest, Love. Panzer Mayer doesn't Panzer Mayer go through as well? Yes. Yeah, him as well. And von Choltich, the commander of Paris. And this continues yes. all the way through to the liberation of Belgium, Holland and into the invasion of Germany. Even after the war, we are still bringing back key commanders that have been captured and we're charming them in this luxury house at Trent Park. It's so full that they also have to use... Latimer House and Wilson Park in Buckinghamshire to house some of those generals. General Ramka, who's captured in his bunker in Brest. You probably remember that in the book. He's captured a life in the colour with something ridiculous, like 24 crates of champagne, cognac, his mistress and his dog. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the intelligence reports say, we brought the whiskey, no, the cognac, that's it, the cognac and the, the uh, champagne back with him, but we left the mistress and the dog behind. I mean... I love that. <laughs> so, Helen, it goes, but it goes from quite a small operation, doesn't it? I mean, in, 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 in many ways, it mirrors the way Bletchley develops because Bletchley expands and sort of industrialises, essentially, doesn't it? Um, as, as they figure out how to, you know, what well, they've got to do to attack the Bletchley, to, to attack Enigma and Lorenz, they've got to sort of expand and have a massive effort. This goes from sort of, who pilots who were shot down, people who've been captured in Norway, some of the people who've been in the bag from from uh, the, the you know the fighting in the summer of 1940, and then after after Tunisia falls, like a massive expansion, doesn't it? You know the North African campaign, they start to fill up with people, but then they capture so many people after North Africa, it sort of has to expand quite rapidly, doesn't it? Yeah, in fact, the foresight of Thomas Kendrick, who's the commanding officer, who set this up with no blueprint, he realises, I mean, it's that belief. Who would believe that we could win the war at that point? And in, at the end of 1940, so way before North Africa's successes, he's looking for two more sites, which he requisitions in early 1941. And those are the two I've mentioned, Latimer House near Chesham in, in Buckinghamshire, and Wilson Park at Beaconsfield. So his foresight is even before that. And that top secret memo, which I love to quote, which gives him an unlimited budget to set up those two extra sites. And you think, 
what's happening already at Trent Park is not speculative. It's actually making a difference to the war. So we are picking up eventually, and this is a report at the very end of the war, which says gives you an idea, I think, of concrete intelligence. 95% of the intelligence we gain on German radar and night fighter tactics came solely from the bug conversations. Now, I find that extraordinary. I wasn't expecting to find that. And that's early. And so Kendrick knows that what they are gathering, and especially the belief we are going to capture those top commanders. I mean, it's an extraordinary belief. We're going to capture them. And when we do, we're going to make sure we get the intelligence. And they're treated differently, as you know from reading both of the books. We give them a life of quite outrageous relative luxury. We keep them in the stately home in Trent Park. So the lower rank prisons are at the other two sites. And they are given flowing whiskey, gin. They're taken to Simpsons on the Strand for lunch. They're taken eventually. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Well, Churchill, of course, supported this. He thought it was a fantastic operation. But when he when he walks in one day to Simpsons and sees the generals having this amazing lunch, he's not happy. And so, but 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 Helen, sorry, the, but the, the 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 generals being taken to lunch at Simpson on the Strand. I mean, why do they are they not smelling a rat, or are they just so vain that they just think because they're important generals that that's what happens? I mean, what what's going on? Yeah, it's the same with. Well, the Americans who were involved in this after Pearl Harbor were told, because some of the generals, other generals went to America, and there's a book, Hitler's Generals in America. If you put Hitler's top commanders in Nissen huts with barbed wire, even though you wire them for sound, they will behave like prisoners of war. You won't get any intelligence. And that book showed that to be true. A brilliant book. Well, Kendrick, you see, who had a lifetime of espionage in the 20s and 30s, who understood German psychology and the psychology of these top commanders, if you put them in a stately home and treat them as military gentlemen with utmost respect, they, they'll throw caution to the wind. It's proved it. I mean, they're not stupid. They're highly educated. Many of them have served in the First World War. They are top commanders. And they've been warned, if the British capture you, your conversations will be bugged. They even bugged the bell tents in North Africa. I mean, honestly. Uh, but it's their ego. And just to top it all, Kendrick says, well, you know, I think they should have a welfare officer. And this is, you know, unbelievable, isn't it? They create a fake aristocrat to befriend the generals that moves in and out of the house with them, takes them to Simpsons on the Strand. When Simpsons is blown, Lord Aberfeldy, as he's named, uh, actually transfers the whole lunch operation to the Ritz Hotel and Churchill never finds out. <laughs> it's just amazing, isn't it? Oh, Absolutely fun. amazing. Well, poor Kendrick gets a, a memo from the Director of Naval Intelligence one day. It says, have you seen the bill for the gin from the Ritz Hotel? This has to stop. But he oh, does. There's a great Kendrick... film to be done on this, isn't there? Well, there's the, pl there's the play, isn't there? Well, there is, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The radio, the radio, play, radio play. play from the from the 60s about it. Um, yeah, uh, that would be good to resurrect that, actually. Well, well I think we're on the trail of you're, that you're, play. You're, I think we've you... managed to find it, yeah. 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 Oh, OK, so... Yeah, you've I, taken I... steps, haven't you, Al? Yeah. I do have a copy of it, so... Yeah. Well, it's who owns it is the issue, who owns the yes. rights. Because uh, the, because the, they redid it as well in the 80s. The BBC revived it, did, did another production of it in the 80s. Anyway, um, so why... 
Um, so I think we're 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 coming to the the question: who who is who is Kendrick, and why is he so good at this? How has he come at this that come at this idea? Um, and you say before the war, of course, he's an incredibly important station chief in Vienna. Yeah. So, so what's going on in Vienna? I mean, we, yeah. we we hear about diamond mines, but what's you know what's the yeah. Vienna connection? Well, don't forget, he has been involved with prisoners of war in France in the First World War. He's been involved right. in counter-espionage, working right. with Claude Dancy, who later yeah. becomes the yes. deputy head of MI6. Yeah. And and others like Stuart Mengis, he's there. There's a whole raft of them. From 1925 to 1938, Kendrick is posted to Vienna. And that's where he's given no training He's actually got to make it up as he goes along. And this is where his natural instincts and interpersonal relationships, he was just a very relaxed, uh, humorous man. And people just loved him. Hmm. He was always interested in others. You never knew what his own political views were. And he spent those 13 years in Vienna setting up spy networks into all parts of Europe, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, into eventually Italy. Originally, he's spying on the Russians. He's tracking really successfully Soviet spies, agents, Bolsheviks, who are trying to destabilise democracy, might sound familiar, Mm. um, (laughs) in contemporary times. And then in the 1930s, he's got the dual threat of Russia and of communism and Nazism and that that network goes in as far as the ports in Germany and he's collecting intelligence but he has to create his agents his informants we don't know we have no idea how many because of course that's never been released yeah but how he's doing it is simple you know have have a few cocktail parties at least once a week Cocktail parties, attending state opera. It was very cultural. So sorry, so, so, sorry, Hannah. What, what's his what's his official presence in Vienna? His official role is as a British passport control officer. Right. So that's <laughs> why he can have parties. He can have parties. He's going in and out of legation. He's entertaining all kinds of people, and his circle includes count countesses, European aristocrats, military figures but also musicians, intellectuals. He has a fascinating life. I mean, he loves it. He's a natural charmer that loves this kind of life, but actually he has one aim, and that is to send intelligence back to London. So it's the kind of charm offensive and building a circle, and you never know when any of those friendships are going to be useful yeah. But he, it is, you know, according to the MI6 official history, Vienna in this period was the most significant, most important posting of any SIS head of station. And you can see why. And, and just to just go on to, to Claude Dancy. So Claude Dancy is, is number two in MI6, but, but as far as I can make out, it seems to be kind of running the show effectively. And, and Patrick Marnham, you know, who... You, you know, yes. we, we all had a conversation with Patrick last summer and he's been on the podcast and all the rest of it. Yeah. He, he, he yeah. thinks that Dancy is a sort of devil incarnate and, and evil and responsible for bringing down any number of network, SOE networks in the Second World War and all the rest of it. Um, and, uh, and and Rob Lyman, who we also know, is a, is a great friend of the of the podcast, 
vehemently disagrees with this and thinks that the Doncy was really, really good news and the SOE were just a bit, or F section anyway, were just a bit rubbish. And that actually the kind of the, the, the most effective part was, was MI9, obviously, and, um, and, um, uh, and MI, is it 11? No, MI9. And, um, and his Z group and, you know, Colonel Groussard and all the rest of it. But, but where do you sit, Helen, on, on called Dancy? He's a shadowy figure at best, isn't he? He is. It's a very mixed figure. And Jimmy Langley, who was at the heart, he was an escaper, at the heart of MI9, actually sort of referred to him as Uncle Claude. Right. And I think people had mixed views. There were others who said, well, you wouldn't want him at the dinner table. I I think not everything has come out about him. I think he, he was... As I say in my MI9 book, I think he was able to make the tough decisions which Stuart Mengis couldn't. So his his dictum, as I, I always like to say this, every man has his price and every woman is seducible. That's dancy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's true. Um, so well, you ought to have a poll to see if it's true. But that gives you an idea... Of of how his, he's, well, how he sees the world and how he's going to operate in it then. Yeah. Well, nothing, as far as I can tell, and I haven't done masses, he just crosses, he crosses the life of Kendrick in South Africa at the just after oh, the Boer War. So he's, Darcy's he's everywhere, there. Helen. He's everywhere, he's Helen. He's everywhere. He, he's, got, he's, he's running SAS. He's, he's, got, he's got fingers in SOEF section. He's got fingers in SOERF section, the French part of it. He's got his Z group. Um, this sort of shadowy extra kind of agency mm. that he totally is responsible for. He's obviously running the show in in um, MI6. He's pretty much running the show in MI9, as far as I can make out, as well. Well, not running the show, yeah. but, he's, but he's got you know he's got his fingers in that particular pie as well. You know, there's not much that he's not not touching, and it, and he's obviously extremely ruthless and extremely efficient. But um, yeah, you know, I think he that's seems a lot. It, it, he seems he seems pretty good at what he does, doesn't he? I think you're right. He's a kind of traditional spy master on one level, but also he has that ruthless side. So in the MI9 book, for example, that whole issue of those double agents, possibly a triple agent working in France, it's possible that he actually did betray the SOE networks. I think it's, I haven't studied it in more detail, but I could quite honestly believe that he did. He did. If if he felt SIS operations were going to be compromised, and yeah. Holland is another example with um, Engelspiel, which is really so complex. I don't know if anyone's really got their head around it. So there are a number of these betrayals. But if it was for the greater good, because of course SOE blowing everything up, Dancy's very nervous about this, and he's yeah. nervous about crossing the MI nine escape lines with the SIS escape lines. So therefore, he controls. He's put in charge of MI9 and SIS escape lines to keep them separate. So he's really influential, probably deserves a new biography. The original one, Colonel Z, is, I think is, I loved it. I keep, keep dipping into that. But the question, the problem is, he's even more shadowy than Kendrick. You know, he's there pulling the strings of MI9, but he's not mentioned in a single MI9 document. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, it does seem to be that he... That's incredible. He, it, it certainly seems that MI6 knew that the Prosper circuit had been broken, I think, as early as March 1943. And obviously it completely comes undone in kind of June and July 1943. Um, and 
they don't do anything about it. But I get the impression that they just think the SOEF section is just a bit rubbish and loose cannon and, and actually achieving very, very little. And maybe, as you say, it's one of those kind of sort of... Um, um, the greater good is to just sort of let it run its course. It's all You know, we were saying about the interconnectedness. Of course, there's another figure crucially at the heart of this, of F section, is Vera Atkins. Yes, of course. And Kendrick knew her family way back in South Africa. Again, it's the connections. They, Her grandfather and father worked for Kendrick right through and well into the 1930s when they moved back to Romania. They're working off the Danube. They're watching That's right, because she's Romanian, isn't she? Yes. And was she communist? Potentially, was she a traitor? No, I don't believe she was. But she's actually one of the bridesmaids... When Kendrick's daughter gets married, his only daughter gets married in Vienna in 1931, and when Vera, yeah, yeah, when Vera, Atkins, and we should just say, we should just say, Helen, for those who don't know, Vera Atkins is the handler of SOEF section female agents, and Vera Atkins, when she came to claim British nationality, who was one of her referees, Thomas Kendrick, and one of the others was his Kendrick's brother-in-law, Rex Pearson, who also had 40-year career with SIS. His his role was pigeons and gadgets to do with pigeons. I mean, <laughs> he's a bit of a cue with pigeons. Amazing. <laughs> and exploding rats Gosh. and what have you. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. 
how I mean, you're obviously you're able to to read the transcripts of the the stuff that they they're getting hold of at um, at Trent Park and so on and Letterman House. But but how how far can you actually push into? How can you echolocate someone like Claude Dauncey if he if he's if he's not in the records if he's not in MI9's records yet he's pulling the strings? How do you find these? How do you locate these people? Is stuff still super secret? Unresearchable. So when, when, when I when I saw you at Sofo, you were saying that you'd put in a, a request about Hess's five days at the Tower of London. And the government have gone, um, no, we can't show you that. Um, or, or they said, no, there's no such thing. But we and you can't have a look. I can't remember what you told me. You said this basically means he was there. They did interrogate him, but they won't let us look at it. Yeah. So if we use Hess as a good example. Yes. Hess, his days in the Tower of London before he's transferred to Matchett Place. Yeah. I, I worked through the Foreign Office files, the FO1093 series that have been declassified on Hess. And there are about 16 files. And you think, great. Well, actually, when you look at what's in those files, it only boils down to a couple that are any interest. The rest are all about Mrs. Bloggs' rights to the government and says she thinks Hess has also got contact with her friend Whatnot in Munich and all that yeah. kind of thing. It's yeah. all this kind of censorship material. You think, hang on, this is this is no use to me. <laughs> to me at the moment as a historian. So there is very, very little of meat then. I realise that those that period in the Tower of London is not covered. I mean, there are references to it, but yeah. it's not covered. You have no idea if there's any files. So I, I asked, did a freedom of information request on those files, not knowing if there were any, and I was told, you know, no, you can't have them. So we know they exist. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Why a period in the Tower of London would still be sensitive? But if it is, and, and actually it's not only Hess, it's also Kendrick. Right. So the Foreign What Office is the big material. secret? I cannot think of anything that could be so secret that they can't release it to the public domain now. Now? Now. It's, now. it's, it's like 80 years ago. Yeah. I don't know, but I'd like to poke around in the eye. You must have immersed in this. I mean, you must have you must have an inkling as to. I mean, what could be so sensitive that that those files are still not allowed? I mean, or is it just or is it just caught well, up in kind of? But you, but there was an attempt the year, but or uh, well, not an attempt, but a sort of idea the year before of getting him to defect, wasn't there? That that fizzled out. That MI six had. Uh, is, is, isn't that right? Well, I think I accept that view that Michael yeah. Smith has has you know robustly argued that Hess was lured here by MI6, and it's clear that he's being. If you look very closely in those FO files, his yeah. movements are being controlled by the head of MI6. He Hess doesn't move around, and unless C head of MI6 um, yeah. actually says so, and in fact his three minders are all SIS operatives. So his minders at my actual place are Kendrick, Frank Foley, another yep. interesting character, yes. British Passport Control Officer in Berlin, yes. and this mysterious Mr. He gets Mr. lots of Barnes. Jews out, doesn't he? Yes, he does, like Kendrick in yep. Vienna. So there's a parallel career there. But And then this mysterious Mr. Barnes who nobody's ever identified. So these three figures are clearly SIS. So SIS is all over it. But did we get intelligence from Hess? And you can read my books to discover. I think we did. We did. It is clear. It's just we didn't believe him. We thought he was exaggerating. Right. 
I mean, it was a nutcase. I mean, Kendrick thought well, it was yes, a nutcase. It, well, yes, because so. there's the there's the nut, the nutcase bit as well with with Hess, which sort of co- sort of muddies the muddies the pool, doesn't it? Really, that he's that he's a loony doesn't 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 sort of help. But 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 I mean, surely we could know that now. Surely, if the if that that's in the documentary record now, who would be harmed by the idea that we? Because I, I, I suppose in the Cold War. It's just before Barbarossa. The last thing you want is the, the impression that the British were talking to the Nazis just just before the the the, um, the Germans attack the Soviet Union. You could you could see that that would look like we were going behind their back. That would be damaging at the time, wouldn't it? Mm. Don't you think, Jim? Yeah, I, I guess but, so. But but, but, but now, now I, just, I just don't understand it. I don't see what the, big, what the big deal is, and I don't understand why they won't release. Details of, you know, Claude Dancy and other stuff from MI6. I mean, what, what's the big secret? Well, it could be methodology. I don't know. I mean, it's the same with yeah. Kendrick. Not all his stuff. I was told, you know, this folio, whatever number, is being withheld in the inter- interest of international security. What? Well, that, that's, that's an interesting one. But, of course, sometimes files are released. Yeah. And historians look at them and think, <clears throat> well, what was all the fuss about? <laughs> yeah. So, well, because because we knew that or we knew that anyway. Or, or is it him saying he, re- he prefers lemon tea to Earl Grey? You know, like it's just not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know the story at the end of John le Carre, David Cornwall's book on Pigeon Tunnel. I don't know if you've read this, but the end no, of his no. autobiography, there is this massive safe when MI6 moves from Broadway buildings to its current, I love the current building, it's great. Yeah. Um, where they move there, there's this safe and they think they should open it and see what's in it. Yeah. And no one's got a key and they ask previous heads of MI6, no, they and they go back to the last survivor and nobody's got the key. So in the end, they get somebody special to break it open and there's nothing in it. And then someone says, well, do you think we should take it with us? We, can't, we could use this. Says, yes. So they pull it out. And John Carey was there when this happened. They pulled out the safe. And what was behind the safe? <laughs> Rudolf Hess's pants. <laughs> no. And this is true. And it, it... That's so brilliant. And there was a label on it which says, you know, please, can you analyse this? Analyse the material. <laughs> What for? Skid marks or something? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's fantastic. Think, well, I mean, oh. it might be his trousers rather than his pants. I mean, but, I'm going to have to go back and have a look. But how bizarre. But why? OK, so they might want to copy his uniform. And we know that's probably something that was done in the Tower of London because yeah. Charles Fraser Smith, that worked for MI6 and MI9, says so in his little memoirs. But why would you hide Rudolf Hess's trousers or pants <laughs> behind <laughs> the back of a safe? I mean, it's bizarre. The skullduggery <laughs> of the Secret Service. Oh, they, they, do the, they do things their own way, don't they, the Secret Services? That's a, that is absolutely amazing. My God. I mean, yeah, mind boggles. So <laughs> there's material still classified. We all know that. But I think, and again, it's part of the journey as historian. Rather than getting frustrated, I've now accepted that. I thought, OK, that, that's OK. We'll work with what we can and what we've got. But it does mean we can never have a complete picture, yeah. of, particularly of intelligence history. But... I, I do. Th- I'm probably one of the minority that think that's okay. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, you're interviewing me. I'm not supposed to be interviewing you. <laughs> well, well, I, I think, think it's really. I think, I think it's really frustrating. <laughs> do you? Yes. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's also, but I also think it's it's inevitable, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, and anyway, and anyway, that that you know, you look at say say you look at the, the the Normandy battle, Jim. There is a paucity of accounts, say, from infantrymen. So there's there's vast swathes of unknown, even in within even within the world that you'd think was concrete in terms of evidence. There's vast swathes of personal experience that are just that have simply. That, that, that don't even exist. I mean, the intriguing thing with the intriguing thing with the intelligence world is you might expect somewhere it's been written down, somewhere, somehow, someone made note made note of this, that, and the other. Unless, of course, they didn't. You know, unless it's unless it's because these people are all connected, because they all know each other. That you know, they 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 discuss it over Sunday lunch, and then they proceed proceed to go from the, you 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 know what I mean. Rather than it being formal necessarily, if it's all people who are bridesmaids and chums i mean is there a sense that it's a, that it's got a, that it's a bit of a chumocracy and not and and not as perhaps professional as it could be because that that's a criticism that's often sort of angled at the british intelligence world is it's full of chaps and gentlemen and people clubbable people rather than rather than hard-nosed uh, spy masters although everyone you've talked about so far sounds like a hard-nosed hard-nosed spy master I think they were highly professional. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And that's that's borne out I think from Kendrick's biography. And someone's actually written a review on Amazon which says I don't know what they know but they said Kendrick's legacy is immeasurable. And I think we get a, a, an insight there's so much probably in his world that I haven't managed to uncover and that's okay. Yeah. And in a sense that whole secret world because it all hasn't been released for for vast swathes of intelligence Hess being another example, a key example, it's open to conspiracy theories. Yeah. And so you've got swathes of conspiracy theories about, you know, what happened to the real Hess. Did he die? Did he stand trial at Nuremberg? And all these aspects fuel the interest, I suppose, in spies and espionage. Mm. So do we want to break that bubble, guys? Do we really want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, well, I'll keep the mystery. Oh, Ellen, you want to, you, Ellen, you want to find out what happened. I mean, I, I, whether that breaks a bubble or not, is that's uh, collateral damage, isn't it, to your yeah, uh, but, curiosity? <laughs> but I don't want to end up in a pit somewhere because I've, I've learned too much. <laughs> of course. But, but as we go, you know, we go back to 80 years ago, how could, how could anyone possibly... I mean, it, 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 methodology, though, is obviously a big part of it, isn't it? And if he's created a way of doing spying, particularly this way of, of holding people and getting them to spill the beans when they don't realise they're doing it. Because after all, just to go back to something concrete, you know, the V2, the, the V weapons programme. Yes. Because because the V weapons programme, the, the people at RAF Mebenham would like to say it was them that, 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 that I first identify the V weapons. But in fact, there's people at, Trent Park, isn't there? Who, who are talking about it? Oh, I saw. I went to a rocket trial a couple of months ago. You know, air crew have been shot down. Say, oh, I went to a rocket trial a couple of months ago at that Peenemunda place or whatever. And there, and there it is. You know, it's happening. It's extraordinary. Well, I was told this. This is interesting. That one of the conversations that wasn't recorded. I mean, you're right. It was first two paratroopers at Latimer House that spilt the sort of beans on the feet, and then 10 days later uh, at Trent Park. And those generals, one day, and this was the heads up, it wasn't recorded, this conversation, but they were sort of talking about, well, the equivalent, the, the German equivalent of sausage and mash. There's this cafe that does this fantastic sausage and mash. And the interrogators were thinking, 
what is a high-ranking general doing in a tiny village? And, of course, it was a few miles from Pinimunda. Yeah. What's he doing over there? And so they were kind of alerted. They thought something. And then 10 days later, you know, they start admitting, we're losing the war. Stalingrad has fallen. It, it, they get delayed news of that. Real broadcasts, fake broadcasts, giving them to, to them in the house. And they start talking about, you know, we are going to win the war. We're going to win the tech war. And at Trent Park, we discover that corroborative evidence of the V1, V2. And that's what prompts another series of flights by the RAF over Pinimunda. Yeah. Because the, the images from 1942 in RAF Mebenham, we couldn't work out what that was. But yes, now we're flying over in 43. And a deeper dive into Spymaster and this whole V weapons. Now, one of the prisoners at Latimer House in July 43, so we're a month, about a month before Pinimunda, said, and whether whether it could have succeeded is a different matter, Hitler intends to invade Britain in September 43 with the V weapons. So for all the progress, and I would heavily defend, and I know I'm on shaky ground here with you guys and your knowledge, but I would heavily defend that without the discovery of those V weapons, which meant the first V1 didn't land on London until a week after D-Day, I don't think we could have mounted the D-Day landings. I think these could have been turned on our troops in Italy. You've also got, you know, we're we're losing the war, say the generals. They're knocking out our mobile sites now because they're talking about it to the hidden microphones. And, you know, General Passenger is the general that says, no, we've got the V3 coming. I'd never heard of a V3. We're tracking Hitler's atomic bomb programme. And I will repeat something which, if anyone's heard a previous podcast of mine, will I always say, because I think it's helpful. I was told that in intelligence circles, as late as February 1945, without Kendrick's sites and without Bletchley Park, we still could have lost the war because Germany could have won the tech war. And we're, we're into Germany. We still could have lost. We see, I do find that extraordinary. Well, this is really interesting, because we, we the, the other day we, we talked to Tammy Davis-Biddle about um, the strategic bombing campaign and how it takes on a different complexion in the in the early months of 45, when when you've just had the Ardennes offensive and, you know, the, the, the basically a very bleak mood comes into Allied High Command about, will we ever win this war? Can we win this war? Um, uh, 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 or when are they ever going to give up? And that I think th- those things tie together quite perfectly there, don't they, Jim? That if that's what you're if that's what you're getting from the people you're listening to, because after all, it's a new it, it's all new influx of people are being captured, isn't it? All the time. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, I mean, so, you, so it's being updated, isn't it, by the by the new people you're capturing. Um, I mean, the, the, the atomic project is is downgraded in July 1942, and it's and it, and it's split. It's riven by rivalries, and there's a, there's a Kaiser Wilhelm um, Institute in Berlin, which is sort of broadly run by people who aren't particularly pro-Nazi. Then there's another guy who's who who, who is massively Nazi, and they do detonate a, a dirty bomb, I think, on something like the third of March in Thuringia, um, 1945, and and but but but. The atomic bomb never has a remote chance of becoming 
something really lethal, a proper atomic bomb. Not not a hope in hell. They're they're so off the mark. They're so their their scientists are so divided and so split, and there isn't the funding, and there isn't the backing from the kind of you know the high command. But but the um, the V weapons is a is a different kettle of fish altogether. And they're definitely they're definitely doing all sorts of funky stuff like working on zero point and things like that. And there's some evidence. It's a bit murky that that experiments were done on zero point and all the rest of it um, in. Um, uh, out in sort of you know the Czech, but what was Sudetenland kind of way, um, uh, under Hans Kamler, who's a, a, a very murky character as well, and the SS of course sort of take over complete control of that, and I think the autumn or summer of autumn, nineteen forty four. I don't know whether they could, whether they did have the stuff that could have. Um, change the course of the war or but not the, but, 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 the, but the point is the perception is and that's the, yeah that's, the, that's exactly the that's exactly the point and it's feeding into this feeling of um that because after the Ardennes offensive where the where the americans you know take a real you know a real hammering don't they and it's there and th- those two months of 45 january and february the worst casualty months for the americans of the whole war because they've also got again you know if you zoom out you've got you've you, you've got the, the fighting, fighting the Japanese going on as well. You know that this—it's this feeling. Will it ever end? And if the Germans have got something up their sleeve, tech-wise, it might mean you go to forty-six, and the, the, this thing just goes on. But it basically seems to be going on forever. And I think that yeah. that that plugs into what we were talking to talking to Tammy about the other day, because um, I, I tend to be like, ah, by January forty-five, foregone conclusion. <laughs> That's how I feel. Well, I think it is a foregone conclusion. I think it is a foregone conclusion. But I think the interesting thing is, is it doesn't seem that way when you're on the ground at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and as, yeah, as yeah. you know, as Tammy said, you know, um, February 1945 was one of the darkest days of the entire entire war. And actually, I think you could argue that April 1945 is an even darker one, despite the fact that you know it's kind of all bar over and um, um, in the European war, there's still a hell of a lot of fighting going on. I have a lot of people losing their lives around the world in April 1945. Well, one of the things about this whole area, particularly with the V3, I mean, it's the, for for me, I mean, I've searched quite a lot in the archives. It's the only known reference to V3 at this time in the declassified files. It's all underground. It's a very difficult, you know, s- scenario now. It's all underground. And how do you know it's there? Aerial photography, you know, you can't pick it up. Unless you, and we are getting it from those bug conversations. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, just, just one more. I mean, because because after all, this is you know, there's so much in this. Do they? What do they learn about? What do the British learn about war crimes? Um. From these, from from these prisoners of war. In the walls have ears. I have two chapters. And we are picking up details of atrocities. Kendrick writes, you know, all prisoners are talking about atrocities. This is in 1940. We are picking up details, yeah, of the mobile gas trucks, which we didn't know about until after the liberation of the camps in parts of Eastern Europe in 1941. Middle of the war, one of the conversations, lower rank prisoners are boasting, we've already killed three and a half million Jews. And his mate says, no, it's five million. And we now know, and, you know, the British intelligence say, well, this is accurate, three and a half million, it can't possibly be. So in hindsight, we now know this to be accurate. But we're also picking up information about the camps themselves. And Kendrick actually 
asks the prisoners who've actually spent time in the camps, maybe as guards, to actually draw the layout of the camp. So there are these extraordinary hand drawings of the layout of camps as well. And, and, and Helen, sorry, what, of, what, what are they able to kind of, how do they act on that? Because one of the, you know, one of the controversies of war is that, you know, we knew about Auschwitz and we knew about the death camps earlier in the war and we didn't do anything about it and should we have done i mean obviously you can't go over bombing auschwitz because it's just not as simple as that but 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 yeah you know is, is are there other could we have used this in a different way and how are we using the information that's coming through 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 this well kendrick asked those secret listeners to keep those acetate discs that the, this the conversations are recorded on of the atrocities a market red a, A for atrocities. And he believed that this would be used for the war crimes trials. And those prisoners of all ranks, including Hitler's top generals, admitted, not all of them, but a lot of them admitted to war crimes. So we're going to do these guys at Nuremberg. Except at the end of the war, I uncovered this fierce debate within MI9 about releasing this material or not. And in the end, it was the head of MI9 who said, no, We've entered the Cold War with, well, of course, still using techniques. This cannot be released to Nuremberg. And the shocking thing is that not a single German general was, you know, faced justice because those bug conversations were not released at Nuremberg. The only one who did was SS Kurt Meyer, and he had tons of evidence on him, other evidence. Yep. So it's the dilemmas of intelligence gathering. And he then gets let off, and doesn't he? Yeah, and the, the justice is not done. Um, and it, it for 70 years, it means that the Wehrmacht, the German army, had a clean bill of health. They were not seen as the ones committing the atrocities. We now have a different view of history. And that's what I meant when I said early on, I think this material is going to change some of our understandings of the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, you've got von Scholtitz. You've got von Scholtitz saying, the, the Fuhrer told me, you know, said we're killing Jews. We didn't want a thousand Jews shot a day. He, you know, that 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 you've got direct connective tissue to Hitler himself in the Holocaust, which, after all, for a lot of people, is the oh well, did he know? How much did he know? What did he know? Um, and you've got people in in these in these camps actually saying what you know that they've seen this happen. Yeah, and Kendrick having that moral compass, and I've said elsewhere that he would he would kill like Dancy really he would kill to protect the secrets of his nation but he had a moral compass and after the liberation of Belsen he made it compulsory viewing and there are now a hundred of Hitler's top commanders at Trent Park it was compulsory viewing for them to see film footage of the liberation of Belsen and they bugged their reactions you know oh it wasn't you know us will you cover for me I don't want to be a war criminal I didn't realize it was as bad as this but General Fon Felbert says, and he's absolutely right, we're disgraced for a thousand years and not a single uh, year will wipe out what we've done. So there's that realisation of the absolute horror and the details in the conversations, just blasé, talking about how they killed women and children and men stood at the edge of the pit, shot them. I mean, it, it's so graphic. Some of it is really, you know, it's hard to finish yeah. reading that conversation. Yeah. Helen, this is so, this is so fascinating and, and, uh, and your passion for the subject is really brilliant. I absolutely love it. I, the, the, because this is a, I mean, this, this stuff is a, I mean, you want it to come centre stage, really, don't you? In the in a way that in a way that Bletchley Park has, 
Because the story of Bletchley sort of dominated things, really, hasn't it? And, um, and uh, you know, w- w- uh, the, the, the research I've been doing lately, the stuff I've been looking at lately, indicates that the, the Germans had done a very good job on penetrating our signals intelligence as well, actually. And that for all the, oh, we knew what they were having for breakfast stuff that we like to say about about the Germans. They certainly knew what, certainly in the desert for a good year, they knew exactly what we were going to do. But they didn't have this. They didn't have this this extraordinary thing. And I think that that, that Kendrick's efforts should be better known, I think is incredibly important. Like you say, it's like a whole other, a whole other dimension to looking at everything. Well, I seriously will heavily defend that without Kendrick's unit, if you take away all that intelligence, and I do urge historians to start looking at this, take away that intelligence, could we have won the war? What difference would it have made? Yeah. And I do, I do want to say um, that it's not only winning, and this the intelligence war against Nazi Germany, and this is something that rang true, and I, I kind of realised from an analysis for Spymaster, by 1943, Kendrick knew that the Russians were the long-term threat again. There are allies at that point. But what you see at these sites, he has now got that dual spying again. He's collecting intelligence on Germany, but he's also collecting intelligence on Russia because we hadn't been spying on Russia up to 43. So what we've got to that, that goes back to that comment in on the Amazon, you know, Kendrick's legacy is immeasurable. Yeah. And it's the head of MI9 who writes to Kendrick at the end of the war and says to him, you have done a Herculean task. A grateful nation should thank you for what you've done, but I don't suppose it will. Wow, that was so top secret. I mean, but look, now we can reclaim that legacy, yeah. can't we? Yeah. We can put him centre stage. He belongs there. He might not have wanted that because he was always very, very discreet, but he absolutely belongs there. Well, Ellen, thanks so much for coming to talk to us. Um, uh, yeah, um, I, I, I actually, um, I can't recommend, recommend Walls of Ears or Spymaster highly enough. They're just, they're absolutely fascinating. And uh, and my 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 um, my wife's grandfather worked at Latimer Park. He's in the, he's in the index. He's in the list of characters in the back of the book. That's very strong. Um, now you tell me. Now you tell me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I get so, but but his daughters. So my my mother in law and her sister. They don't they don't know about they don't know anything about it. They know that he did this. They know that um, that he was there, but they don't know b- beyond that. They don't know anything about it. So I gave them both the book for Christmas so they could find out what Captain E. <laughs> e. A. Morton Ted did during the war. There you go. Oh, it's priceless. Isn't it priceless? So thank you. Thanks. Because thanks for that helping with my Christmas stockings this year. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, Helen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we've been talking to Helen Fry. We'll see you all soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. Bye. <laughs>